No, welcome so much. Welcome all of you to The Sharp Way. Yes, I'm Larry Sharp here. Yet another Monday evening. I am so happy you decided to join me for an amazing two-hour show. Yes, you have to stay all two hours. It's the rules. Uh, if you want to join us in the program, you can call us in at 573-427-5463. Why would you want to call in? Because I am very lucky today. I have a guest who is an amazing man who I know personally, who I've seen in action, a man who has beaten the IRS, a man who has beaten the feds, a man who has defended people who need defended, a man who cares tremendously about our justice system. He is the man, the myth, the legend himself, the principal of Varghese and Associates, my friend and my hero, Manu Varghese. Thank you for coming, my friend. Thank you so much. Very happy to be here. How awesome. Look. You literally have gone to court and beaten IRS. You literally have defeated the federal government um, where others, you know, fail miserably. But I got to go someplace else, though. You're the son of a taxi driver. I am. Tell me about that. How, how does that kid become the man you are? Tell me how that happens. I'm just going to say that I'm very blessed I mean, this is where I believe in America. Mm-hmm. I was born in Bombay. My dad was a textile worker in Bombay. If you saw Slumdog Millionaire, mm-hmm. it wasn't exactly that. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we humble beginnings. My mom mm-hmm. was a nurse. Mm-hmm. And so my mom in the 70s, I'm just sort of aging myself here, Larry. <laughs> right, you know, right. I, just, I got you. You know, you're getting an idea. You get a little history lesson. Okay. But in the 70s, my mom um, got a visa to come here. Mm-hmm. Because there was a huge nursing shortage in New oh, York State. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So what they America did, or New York did, I guess they petitioned that. I'm not sure how it worked exactly. But mm-hmm. New York was able to get a bunch of these people to come over mm-hmm. from India and the Philippines. Got it. So okay. if you look at a lot of the hospitals in New York, some of the older women, mm-hmm. now older, right. are, are from India and from the Philippines. And that was your mom was part of that wave. My mom was part of that wave, correct. Wow, very nice. So here you come. You were raised in Queens, right? Correct. So New York City boy like myself. Yep. Absolutely. So you're raised in Queens. I remember, you know, you told me you went to a pretty tough school, right? Shamanad, right? That was high school. High school, pretty tough yeah. school. So you go in there, pretty tough school. Um, kids didn't like you there. No, no, no. Shamanad was fine. It was very interesting. Okay. Uh, Shamanad was uh, most of the stuff that adversity I faced was in grammar school. Grammar school. Up in Bayside. Oh, was that right? Bayside was a tough place, you man. Bayside people. Bayside was oh, a tough place for for uh, you know someone of my complexion. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't uh, easy growing up. Right. But uh, you know, it was it was fine. I dealt with a lot of stuff. I dealt with. You know, you, people don't like to use the word today, but, you know, because they don't want to say that it happened. Mm-hmm. But I dealt with a lot of, you know, racism growing up, mm-hmm. not just from whites, but from blacks. Mm-hmm, sure. Because, mm-hmm. you know, neither group was like, sure. looking for somebody to pick on. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So, I got the it. Italians and the local right. blacks right. thought they could pick on me. But mm-hmm. fortunately, my mom took me to karate class or mm-hmm. actually, let me correct myself, mm-hmm. Taekwondo class. Taekwondo. Yes. I actually studied Taekwondo as a kid too. Yeah. So that, nice. that helped. And, you know, it was great. And then I went to Chaminade and... Mm-hmm. I was thought I was going to fight because I went to mostly a uh, overwhelmingly white high school. But mm-hmm. I didn't experience that kind of stuff at nice. all. Nice, oh, good in for high you. school. But now you became a prosecutor. Don't remind me, Larry. <laughs> I'm just saying, <laughs> you became a prosecutor, right? I mean, I try to disavow that part of my <laughs> life and career. You know, yeah, not um, exactly true, but, but you know, but no, you became a prosecutor. And I guess what made 
I remember something you told me, which really resonated with me. You actually said that there is there are cultures in kind of each, I guess, district. Is that the right way of saying it? Sure. There are cultures yeah. in each district. And I think the average person doesn't think that. The average person thinks that, you know, every DA is the same and they follow the law and that's all they do and that's how it works. But you said there's a different culture in almost each district. Explain it to me. So I was a prosecutor in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. It's very different. I joined the Brooklyn DA's office in September 5th, 2000. Ah, okay. Uh, and it was a phenomenal experience. Mm -hmm. And I was surrounded by people who we questioned everything. Mm -hmm. We just assumed everyone was lying to us. Sure, right? right? But you're saying everyone. You're saying even cops? Yes. So you assumed everything. You, you, you had a, the idea that everybody had to prove it to you. Correct. Whether it was the cops, whether it was the civilians, whether it was the crooks or the good guys or the bad guys, didn't matter to you. Everyone had to prove because we knew that to secure a conviction, we had to overcome great odds. Mm -hmm. And that was not only securing the conviction, but also securing it, making sure it withstood it on appeal. Mm, okay. So in our view, we only brought a case that we believed was absolutely legitimate under our watch it was our like mantra amongst my small group of friends, and it wasn't everybody in the office, but amongst a group of the people that I surrounded myself with, many of whom I'm still with, friends with today. Mm -hmm. We were like, no innocent man will ever get prosecuted under our watch. Mm -hmm. And we made sure of that. Got and it. so- uh, I, I don't think that I can say, I think most people would think that's not true of a lot of prosecutors particularly after watching some of the, the Netflix TV shows, specials, things like that. I think there are a lot of people who think that that's not true. I think you're wrong, Larry. Tell me. Because the reality is the majority of Americans watch Law & Order. Chronicle. Ah, okay. All right. So the majority of Americans are believing that prosecutors are good, wholesome people committed to justice at all costs. There we go. Right? I like that's that. the character that Sam Waterston played, yep. right? Um and it was under that sort of rubric, which mm -hmm. was set in Manhattan, right? which couldn't be further from the truth, but that's a whole other point. <laughs> right? We're in Manhattan broadcasting this show. <laughs> Unfortunately, most of the prosecutors weren't, you know, uh, well, let me, let me just, we can, we can come back to that. But uh, there's just this uh, perception. Right. And I got this when I was a, a young prosecutor in the early 2000s. People were like, oh, you're just like Law and Order. And I'm like, sure. <laughs> right, yes. Right. I'm it's Sam a, Waterson. It's me. Yeah, yes, yeah, of it's, course. It's me, yeah, right? Like yeah. 50 years younger. That's me, right? <laughs> right. So, I mean, that's the thing that, that I got, that okay. there was this perception countrywide that the prosecutors are good guys. Why? Why, Larry? Because they wouldn't bring anybody to, to jail unless they were guilty, right? Who do they work with? They work with the cops? Correct. Ah, there we go. Work with the cops. There we go. And okay. so the majority of Americans believe mm -hmm. cops are good. Mm -hmm. And I would say for the most part, they're, most cops are good. And mm -hmm. I'll say that, right? But the reality is that it's a little different. Most of my criticism of government is not against cops. Mm -hmm. It's against prosecutors. Mm, okay. So you look at it from a whole different view. Right. Because I believe as a prosecutor, you have a much higher duty. The street cop is only going to bring a case if you allow him to. Got it. Eventually, okay. if you keep dismissing cases, right, mm -hmm. and you're bringing it in because you're like, there's no probable cause or what's this? You can't withstand it. You're not going to survive in the grand jury. The street cop is going to learn. One of the criticisms Hold we on. got- Hold on. So what you're actually saying here is, and this is something that I think most people don't get, that 
part of the cultural issue within a police force is the district attorney's office. Beyond, yes. But what I'm telling you is most people always go, oh, it's the police chief. No. Right? The police chief is a bad guy if the cops are doing the wrong thing. It's all the police chief's fault. You know, that's all it is. You're telling me that it's not just the police chief. Maybe the police chief, obviously, it's possible. Sure. But you're saying that that a huge part of police culture is based upon the DA's office. Absolutely. Because one of the criticisms we would get Mm -hmm. from police officers Mm -hmm. who – and this is, I was a prosecutor from 2000 to 2006. So one of the one of the criticisms we'd get from cops who had been in different boroughs, particularly right. in Manhattan, would be like, uh, they would put this through in Manhattan. And I go, you're in Brooklyn, baby. <laughs> <laughs> this is Brooklyn, baby. They're like, I got to get transferred. <laughs> <laughs> we would have these fights mm-hmm. with cops. Now, the good cops understood that. Right. And they understood that, hey, we had a higher level of scrutiny because the jury pool was much more skeptical of ah, police officers in I Brooklyn see. in the early 2000s, right? Mm-hmm. At least when I was there. Right. My understanding has changed now. Mm-hmm. And also the judiciary was much more, um, was much more skeptical Got it. of prosecutors. Mm-hmm. And so the guys that became pros- judges mm-hmm. in Brooklyn in the 2000s, early 2000s, and, and my understanding was before. I can only speak to when I was there. Right. Were more skeptical of prosecutors because they were skeptical of the police and held us to a higher standard. So a former prosecutor who became a judge was more skeptical of us. Got it. Was harder on us as prosecutors than they were on the public defenders, as it should be. Sure. Absolutely. When I became a criminal defense attorney in 2006, my eyes were like bust open. (laughs) Okay. Because most of my cases were not in Brooklyn. But hold they on were in Manhattan. L- let me let me ask an important question. What makes you make that switch? I mean, you literally switch teams. Yes. Right? I mean, you literally switch teams. What makes you I mean, look, for, from what you tell me, what I understand, you were a good prosecutor, right? I mean, I've seen your words. You're a good you're a good prosecutor. Why leave that? Go off and stay a prosecutor or become a judge or, you know, become a DA or whatever. Why leave and decide, you know what? I'm going on my own. And you went on your own. You didn't even go join some big firm or something, right? I mean, you you could have done that. That was an option for you. You didn't. You instead said, no, no, I'm going off on my own and I'm going to be a defense attorney. The reality was culturally I was no longer a prosecutor. Okay. And ultimately, even in an office that was this forward-thinking and let me just give a shout out to my former boss. Okay. Rest in peace, Charles Hines. Okay. He was criticized at the end of his career because of stuff that went on. There was a lot of criticism, particularly in the New York Times. That man was the most progressive prosecutor in the country. Ken Thompson got a lot of credit for a lot of the stuff that was undertaken under Hines. But Hines got a lot of publicity. He stayed too long, mm. right? And if you remember the DA in uh, Batman, The Dark Knight, oh, you yes. know, he said, you either live lo- you're either the hero or you live long enough to be the villain. Unfortunately, Charles Hines lived long enough. It stayed long enough to be the villain, right? right? That was his mistake. He stayed too long. Um, the reality was that by the time I was there, like, you know, four, three and a half, four plus years, I realized that... There was a certain culture, even in a place as progressive as Brooklyn, I wasn't that guy. Got it. I wasn't okay. there, and I knew that you know it was there. I didn't – look, I was – and I've said this, and I'm not proud of it, but I was a soldier in the war on drugs. Sure. I'm not proud of it. Right. I, I wish I figured it out earlier, mm-hmm. but 
had it not been for my experience in the DA's office, sure. I may have never figured it out. That's true. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Until you're on the front lines and you're realizing, why are you prosecuting these guys, these low, you know, either low-level, even mid-level guys, mm-hmm. and some high-level guys? And you're like, what's this all about? I right. mean, to me, the, the, and you've had a guy, a couple of people on here over the last few weeks talking mm-hmm. about the massive failure the war on drugs has been. I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. Right. I couldn't agree with your guests more. Mm-hmm. Um, but you had to actually go through that right. as a lawyer, mm-hmm. as a prosecutor, as a human being to understand really what that means. And I got to go through that, and I was like, I don't want to be part of this anymore. Got it. Okay. I don't so want to be part of this. So then once you figure this out, I mean, you could have just bought a franchise McDonald's, right? I mean, you could have gone off to some big firm. You were, there were a lot of options. Why on your own? Why the entrepreneur? Because I enjoy uh, criminal defense and I enjoy the the role. Listen, I didn't go into law school mm-hmm. to go do real estate. I didn't go do c- corporate transactional work. Sure. You could shoot me in the head. I'd be so bored. <laughs> and to you know, to all my friends who are corporate transactional attorneys, I love you. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> but I Someone's just can't do what you do. Someone's got to do that work too. I mean, Absolutely, work, and I have whole work. tremendous amount of respect for those people who can read. Contracts that are this thick with with print this then mm-hmm. not me got it okay so you you wanted to go out there and be the almost like a crusader in a way yeah look I mean here here's the thing that I see as a you know private criminal defense attorney I get to fight the man and get paid to fight the man that's true no I like that <laughs> I do it I'm not a public defender mm-hmm. God bless the public defenders yep. they do. Absolutely wonderful work. I started realizing the good work that they were doing as an institution mm-hmm. when I was a prosecutor. I had great relationships with the public defenders because the ones that were honest mm-hmm. and like, okay, this is what we can do, what we can do, and advocated for their client. Ultimately, the problem with a lot of the public defenders' office or individual public defenders is that they're so busy trying to fight the man, mm. they forget their individual client. Got it. And I had situations where they were like, you didn't take these ridiculously low offers, and their clients are doing life in jail now. Got it. Because they were so busy on a, you know, they were standing. being righteous. And they not, were being yeah. righteous and mm-hmm. forgetting your first duty as a criminal defense attorney is your individual client. Sure. Not the system. Right. But as a private criminal defense attorney, I protect my client. And if I can put a poke my nose in the eye of the government, <laughs> I enjoy that. Sure, you know this, Larry. Yes, I know. I, I, I get it completely. Look, guys, but real fast, if I could say, if, if you like what you're hearing, if you're enjoying what we're talking about, and if you think it's interesting, then do me a favor. Support this show. Support this show. Heading over to patreon.com slash sharpway. Give what you can give, and you even get some cool swag. Yep, some cool swag. If you want, you can get that. Cool swag. I usually wear my shortway t-shirt, but I couldn't because I was traveling New York State this weekend and I wore them all. So they're all dirty. I didn't want to bring a smelly shirt and and, and make me new angry at me. I so didn't want to, I didn't want to do that. that. So I wore this shirt instead. So if you can support us, that's awesome. We love that. And of course, if you want to call into the program, 573-427-5463. So now you become a, a, a prosecutor. I'm going to say, now you've become a, a criminal defense attorney, trying to fight the man, win the battles, all those things. Um, do your former prosecutors, are they angry, don't care, jealous, what, happy for you? So the people that I was, I, I was and am friends with, they're happy for me. Oh, because good. you have to understand, there are wonderful people who are prosecutors. Mm-hmm. 
number of people, and I'm going to give a shout out to one of my boys, Dave Weiss. Mm-hmm. He might get fired after I said this. So, <laughs> sorry, Dave. You're a great guy. <laughs> there are some great people who are former prosec- who are prosecutors, mm-hmm. and that's what they're meant to do. Understand, people have different callings in life, and mm-hmm. I don't knock it. It was, just wasn't for me anymore. Got it. Okay. Right? Uh, but there are people who are exactly what how you described, mm-hmm. who don't like me, who don't trust me. The funny thing is that I deal with a different bias against me mm-hmm. from people who were public defenders their whole life and now in private practice. They're like, oh, you were a former prosecutor. You were part of the man. Ah, you were evil. Yes, yes, I'm yes. like, really? Yes. We're on the same team, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, get over it. Yes. All right, well, I'm going to grab a phone call. We've got some people calling, so I want to jump on the phones if I can. Um, I think I'm going to stay in New York since we are in New York. I'm going to grab uh, Matt from Syracuse. Matt, are you there? Matt, Matt, you there? Matt, are you hearing me? Hello. Hey, Matt, how are you? It's Larry Sharp. Are you there? I'm losing you, Matt. And I think I'm going to lose Matt. Matt, one more time. Are you there? I like dinosaur barbecue in Syracuse. Yes, now, Larry. Thank you. Talk to me, Matt. You make it make you sit here. I'm losing. I'm losing my audience. You got to talk to me, Matt. Tell me something good. I'm, I'm sorry, couldn't hear you at all. No and worries. Working radio. We won't talk about that. But Larry, I wanted to know. Uh, so I've been talking to some fellow, you know, potential voters, Larry supporters from the last year ballot. I'm seeing the uh, libertarians in a lot of these sample ballots seem to be just endorsing candidates, mostly the Republican Party. Uh, we want to understand that better. We want to understand your point of view on that. And, you know, how can we get more libertarian participation out here? Okay, so you're not paying attention to our conversation at all. But no worries. <laughs> I still love you, Matt. I'm glad you called, and I'm going to answer your question anyway. Yes, Matt, it's a very good uh, question. And, and for those of you who don't know, I literally traveled the state this entire year, and yesterday – I made my final uh, stop, and I covered all 62 counties in New York State. I did the full sharp. I did it twice in a row. I did it last year when I was running and again this year. And I go around the state talking to people, meeting people, exactly what you're talking about, Matt. Here is the issue to remember. For those of you who don't know, in New York State, we have what's called fusion voting. In New York State, that means only about seven states have it. You can have one candidate on multiple lines. So you can be uh, on the Democrat line, the Republican line, the conservative line, all those lines, the libertarian line, whatever the case may be. For those of you who don't have it in your state, that may seem very weird and odd. And the reason why it seems very weird and odd is because it's very weird and odd. It really shouldn't (laughs) exist, but it does. So that's how it works. So that's what we do. So what's happening now, since we just got ballot access and in New York State became an actual party, many people now want our line. So they petition us to get a second line. Democrats petition us, Republicans petition us, and then uh, libertarians. The, to be forward with you, Matt, there simply aren't enough libertarians in the state to fill the lines that lots of people want to fill. Lots of them. Personally, and this is a personal note, I'm against fusion. I don't like fusion voting. I wish it didn't exist. But the reality of it, it does. And I don't think me or anybody at the top of, uh, of our um, LP, if we're going to be libertarians – and we're going to claim that we care about localism, we at the top should not be deciding whether local people 
decide to f- make fusion candidates or not. I can say I don't like it. That's not a problem. I have the right to say that. But I want the local communities to decide if they think they should be having fusion candidates or not. The idea that most are Republican is simply not true. The best example I can give you is Cataractas County. Cataractas County right now has 14 people running, three are cross-endorsed Democrats, three are cross-endorsed Republicans, and eight are Libertarian straight. That's what I want across this entire state. Now, as long as we have fusion, I want local people to decide if they want to make a fusion candidate or not. There is a problem with that, and I think which is what you're probably talking, uh, thinking about, is some people aren't really Libertarians. And they're just kind of liberty-leaning Democrats or liberty-leaning Republicans, and they're going to take our line and win uh, and win on our line. You're probably right. Some of them are going to do that. But in reality, probably no one will be on that line anyway. But assuming that they do that, also some of them are going to realize that we're actually better for them, that we actually are a better party for them, that we actually have infrastructure, that we're able to support them. And one of the ways of doing that is by me getting out there and doing press conferences for them, raising money for them, and showing them that we have infrastructure. This year is an awkward year for us. It's our first year. And it's also very easy for us because of election law to be able to cross-endorse very easily. So we're doing a lot of it. Some of it will be a disaster. I know that's your concern, Matt. And you're right. Some of it will. But some of it will grant us new talent and people who realize the party is a good party and they should be part of it. Did I at least answer your question, Matt? Yes, Larry. Okay, that was easy. Matt, you're easy. You're an easy caller. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate it. Thanks. Keep up the good fight, Larry. Appreciate you. All right. Thank you. All right. Um, I'm going to head to another one, another um, a caller, which I think this person is paying attention to the show. <laughs> uh, we're going we're gonna to go to Texas now. We're going to go to Ben in Texas. Ben, please tell me that you hear me. Uh, I hear you, Larry. Can you hear me? I can. What's going on, my friend? Talk to me. Excellent. Hey, I want I wanted to ask your guest here. Um, you know, I want to talk about the logistics of, of prosecution. Um, and it just it seems to me, and he's he's out of Brooklyn, but uh, you know, he probably dealt with a lot of cases. But every courthouse seems to have a capacity to how many trials it could actually have a week. Actually, try. A lot of people plead. A lot of people plead out, and that is how uh, a lot of these courtrooms are able to achieve these just astonishing number of convictions yeah um and actually very few amount of people actually take their cases to trial sure um and in 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 my belief and this is just a theory that if culturally uh, there was a cultural shift where you know pleading out uh just became something that we just don't do and uh-huh. taking we we take our cases to trial that these courtrooms would really be limited in how many cases they could try uh, and therefore would have to pick the cases with the most merit uh, at, at that point. Right now, they're able to just assembly line justice. Sure. And I, I want to talk it. about the logistics and maybe how we can have a cultural shift towards taking our cases to trial. I like uh, it. Jury nullification. Oh, now, don't like don't go down all these lines. Go down one <laughs> line at a time, Ben. Come on. One line at a time. Sorry, let's guys. Do, let's uh, do logistics hey, first. Say, Larry. Yeah. Larry, could could you say your guest's name again? I, I didn't yes. catch his name. No from worries. The beginning. Venu Varghese. Venu Varghese. Nice to meet you, sir. Are uh, you having thoughts on what I had to say there? Please. Uh, you seem to understand the criminal justice system better than most people, and you are 100% correct. If 
everyone decided to challenge the government, whether at the state level, uh, the federal level, the criminal justice system would come to a halt mm. because the criminal justice system is built on plea deals, mm. right? So in the in New York State and in the federal system, I can't speak to Texas, but I don't think Texas is far off. I think most of the states have similar plea ratios. It's about 95% of cases are resolved Indeed. prior to trial. 95%? Correct. Wow. So how many cases as a prosecutor could you try a week in one courtroom? Well, it depends. So there are two types of trials. There are jury trials and bench trials. So the reality is jury trials are very difficult to try. And mm-hmm. logistically, they're very difficult. Bench trials, I mean, a prosecutor could try <laughs> literally. Well, I, I mean, I'm talking about going through full jury, board dire, the whole process, because that drags out the court. And that oh, really yes. makes the court have to choose the cases with the most merit. Now, my, my calculations, uh, your average courtroom can only try a few cases a week, actually go through voir dire, the whole, the whole trial process, sentencing, the whole nine yards. Yeah, but Ben, I, I get where your point is, but here's the worry with this, right? I, I totally am on board with this, but the problem becomes immediately, who is going to sacrifice their liberty for this change? In other words, if you start doing this all of a sudden, you're going to have people sitting in jail for years, and it's only going to be the poor people because they can't afford bail. Right. They're going to be sitting in jail for years waiting on their trials until they figure out what they're going to do. They're not going to just start letting people go. That's not going to happen. And on top of that, now those people who could be pleading out are not going to, and they're going to get hammered in sentencing. And, and can well, I- you know, Larry – not everybody is an activist. Activism is not for everybody. But sure. if we teach people these forms of activism, you know, we give them the knowledge, the tools, and, and they will fight. I think that's true. Go ahead. Then go ahead. Listen, um, here's the problem. Larry's like, he, he and I have discussed this very issue multiple times. The reality is to fight the government, whether at the local level or at the federal level, requires two things. Number one, will. Mm-hmm. And number two, money. Yep. Most of the people, and Larry's 100% right, in New York, um, a lot of people are sitting in jail waiting. And there aren't enough public defenders to defend them to push the prosecutor's offices. So what happens is that there are deals that are cut. And both between the prosecutors and the criminal defense attorneys and mostly public defenders, because that's who represent the majority of criminal defendants in America. It's not a private criminal defense attorney like me, but a public defender. Both, the, especially the public defenders are underfunded, yep. understaffed. Yes. They don't have the resources to investigate all these cases. And the most of the time, the prosecutors, with the exception of certain cases, aren't going to spend the time to do the thorough investigation that's necessary. And that's because, and here's ready. You ready for this? I'm going to tell you something. Texas is better than New York. I'm not surprised. Texas has <laughs> more surprised. open criminal discovery than New York State does. New York State is behind the ball in open cases. There have been a number of cases, high-profile cases, of innocent people <clears throat> getting the death penalty in Texas that spurred a change in the laws in Texas and North Carolina, particularly those two states, New York is behind the ball in open file discovery systems. The key to justice in America is open file discovery. Explain that. 
What that means is that as soon as a prosecutor gets a piece of evidence, he turns it over to the defense attorney or she turns it over to the defense attorney. Prosecutors in New York, particularly in this county of Manhattan, have a culture of cowardice. They hide things. All four other city prosecutors have some form of open file discovery. Texas has open file discovery. North Carolina has open file discovery. Florida. So hold on. So what that actually means then is the prosecution gets a whole lot more time to deal with that evidence compared to the defense. <clears throat> is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely. They get to play their, with their cards down, yes. Right. Um, and – that's, this should be a platform. This is a potential platform item for the uh, New York party right here, uh, Larry, uh, open file discovery. And also, Venu, uh, can we talk about maybe, uh, I'm sure in, in New York there, you guys can uh, at least do, you know, uh, be, pro, you know, go pro se, at least to a degree. And I feel like if more. If you uh, want a fool for a client, represent yourself. <laughs> Yes, I, I understand. I, under, I, under, I understand that. I understand that in its entirety. But however, um, if you're if you happen to be sitting in in a county jail, uh, knowing the basics of how to file for a motion of discovery does put the court in a position where now they have to get they have to get their stuff together to some degree. Uh, what I'm can we true. do? No, to, let, let uh, me let me touch a couple pieces there. Number one, as a general rule, that's not true. As, as a general rule, what happens, and, and if you've ever been, I don't know if you've ever been in the system, but if you've ever gone through the system, one of the biggest issues people have is when, they, when they've been arrested or when they're awaiting investigation or whatever is they want to do something. They want to be part of this. They want to take action. And the courts are like, we'll get to you whenever we get to you. Exactly the way you talked about it. It's, there's a backlog and they'll get to you when they get to you. But, but people who are in the system, they're like, but I got to do something. I want to do something. And then they start doing what you're talking about. Let's, I'll start putting motions. And they don't know when that motion should or shouldn't be put forward or what the words they put in it actually mean because English isn't legalese. And they stop messing this up and messing that up. And now they can hurt themselves even worse. Now, again, your point of I, I force the government to act. Absolutely true. But you might be screwing yourself you know, you might be screwing yourself in the process. Well, uh, Larry, I, I, I would, I would suggest that a motion for discovery is a fairly safe motion to file as a, as a pro se litigant. Uh, I would bet you, and I would bet you that out of the thousands of people who watch and listen to this show, out of the thousands who do, maybe ten understood the sentence you just said. Maybe ten. Maybe we can educate people. I'm good with that. We should be doing that. I'm in. Why do you think I got, you're why do you think I got this guy right here? That's why I got this guy you're right the, here for why this. Why do you think I'm calling you, Larry? You're I love best. it. This is where the change needs to happen. Absolutely, my friend. But I want to go to the other piece you said now, and that is the idea of jury nullification. Jury nullification Excellent. drives me crazy. I'm going to tell you why. I've been in a jury more than once in New York, in New York State. Judges literally say it is against the law. And people, when I tell them that, they can't believe that I tell them that. Judges literally say things like, if you don't think this is a crime, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Then you, 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 Many times you've heard this. It doesn't matter. You still have to convict. Now, you and I, Ben, know that's not true. But in New York State, Benu, that's true. This? How, it's true how in New York State. This, 
you have to get Congress to act, mm-hmm. and you've got to get your legislatures to act to allow for provision to do that, because the instructions that are given, mm-hmm. both at the federal level and at the state level, are that it is it's unimportant how you feel, or they'll ask during jury selection. That too. Even if you disagree with the law, if the government has proven its case and has established the elements of the crime, will you convict? And the answer is you must convict. That's correct. Yes. If you can't convict, you're off the jury. Now, some people will lie, but most people, unfortunately, see jury service as a burden. Mm-hmm. And, and the way that I look at it, and Larry is a Marine because there's no past tense with Marines. I know this. <laughs> he has his USMC tattoo on his arm. Um, there are judges, and I say this when I speak to jurors, that there's the highest duty you can serve this country and is as a member of the active forces. The second highest duty is to actually sit on a jury. Yes. And so the people don't see it that way. Most people, I get calls from people I know. They're like, dude, I got a jury summons. How do I get out of it? <laughs> yes. I'm like, do your goddamn civic duty. Yes. yes. And, and, and do Judy. Cause we need smart people on juries. Yes. We don't need people who try to get off juries because you need to question the prosecution. Absolutely. You need to pull them to the proof. I, I don't I, care what the crime is. Hold them to the proof. And the reality is that the systems, particularly the federal system, I mean, you can't get more of a system that is designed to ensure conviction <laughs> yes. than the United States federal criminal system. Yes, you told me something that blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. I thought it was a mistake when you told me this. You And I tell the people this, and they think I'm making this up. You said that when it comes to closing statements, the government goes first, <laughs> right? Then you it, it, go. It, I still shake my head yes. when I think about it. Yeah. Then, then, then defense goes. Then the government gets a rebuttal. Yes. Can, yeah. Did you hear what I just said, Ben? Yes. Yes. That, that's that's how that's how it goes. It, it is a slightly tilted field. That's not uh, slightly, that my that's friend. Not slightly. That is not slightly. That's super twi- tilted. So basically, you get to say how bad the guy is. Then the guy goes, I'm not that bad. And you get to go, yeah, he is. Don't listen to him. That's literally what happens. Yeah, that's, yeah it's, there, is, there, there is a tilted field. And each courtroom does have, you know, it's little, it's little nuances. But that is essentially how it goes yep. uh, right there. Uh, now, one thing I want to say before I, I go here is, uh, you know, just as us as libertarians and, and so forth with everything that's going on. Uh, Vinu yeah, didn't say it was libertarian. You know, we, he didn't Wait, say. Well, I, 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 didn't say, I didn't say Venu. I, I didn't say Venu was. I didn't okay, say Venu was. But Venu seems like a. He seems like a good guy, though. That's true. That's that he like is. I yes, it. appreciate I feel, that. I feel, I feel like. I feel. I feel like he would appreciate. My mom would be very happy so, you know, right now. Uh, you know, I, and I, I'm, I'm guilty. I'm guilty of this here myself. You know, we as libertarians, we're bolsterous people. We fight amongst ourselves all the time. Uh, but I think that we should make a special effort. So special effort. To uh, you, you know, to uh, to unite around one thing. I think that we can really need to prosecute in the court of in the court of public opinion uh, on, on Twitter, on Facebook, what have you. Uh, the 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 opposition, uh, you know, here uh, together. There's a huge opportunity right now. Every time they, they, you know one of these uh, folks says something outrageous on on Twitter, it's just. It's a grand opportunity for us to go after him, and I don't think we're doing that enough. And, and maybe you guys can well, talk look, about there's, there's it. A, there's an issue here, Ben. You've told, you have talked about two different things. You talked about educating and going after. Those two things are absolutely separate things. I'm not saying we can't do both, but we can't do they both are. at the same time. 
right? They're two separate things. And the guy I always bring up, and he's my hero, I bring up many times, is the guy Daryl Davis. Daryl Davis is a brother like me who goes out and literally talks to KKK members and gets them to become Mm -hmm. non-KKK members. It takes him literally years of befriending them and talking to them, and he keeps their hoods as trophies. This guy doesn't attack them at all. He just talks. I'm not saying we shouldn't go after him. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying these are two separate things, and we want to make sure that they are separate and not because once you mix those two, if I'm actually trying to, if I'm going to argue with someone and get mad at them and try to win a debate, it's not to turn that person. It's to turn those watching, right? That becomes a show. The person I'm yelling at isn't going to change their mind and go, wow, Larry, you've called me an idiot. I now believe you. That's not going to happen. But the people watching might think that. So I just want to make sure that we're talking about this, that they are two separate things. Yes, yes. The court of public opinion is the, the jury that's watching uh, whatever the debate is going down. But there is so much opportunity to be debating the Democrats and Republicans right now. It's not even funny. I don't see how we have time to be uh, fighting amongst ourselves. I'm with you uh, 100%, I, I, I want to see everybody. I want to see everybody on the front lines facing off against all these uh, career politicians. This political establishment's got to go. I am and with now, you, Ben. So do I. I'll see you guys. I'll see you guys. Great show. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate it. Talk to you soon. All right, guys. If you want Bye. to be super cool like Ben was, you can do that. <laughs> you want to talk to the cool guys like us, be part of the Cool Kids Club. You can absolutely do that. You can just give us a call five seven three four two seven five four six. Three And if you like what you're hearing, if it's interesting and special, then support the show. Head on over to patreon.com slash sharpway and do a monthly gift. Yes, I'm asking for a monthly gift. Nine bucks, 48 bucks, something, whatever you can do. Throw some bucks, throw some bucks my way. Throw enough bucks, you get cool swag. Cool shirt like this. You get a cool mug, all kind of cool stuff. So come on by, support the show so that we can keep this thing rocking and rolling. All right, then I want to go to another step. Um, When we were talking in the past, you know, we we would talk about the things that you do. And there are some times, I mean, it's great as libertarians. I know you're not libertarian, but I know libertarians always think that everyone who's convicted is innocent. That's not true. It's not. There are some bad guys. Absolutely. Um, How do you square the circle that you've got to defend both people who are totally innocent, you've defended people who are completely innocent, people who are bamboozled by the government, and you've also defended people who aren't so great. How do you square that circle? It's not that difficult, Larry. Okay. It's, it's simple, and I tell this to people. It's the defense of those that you don't like. Mm-hmm. It's the defense of people that make, make your skin crawl at times that protect the rest of us. It's the ones, it's the defense. If if you protect the rights of people you don't like or society doesn't like, then we are safer. Got our, it. Our families are safer. Our wives, our children, our husbands, our daughters, our sons, cousins, brothers, everyone is safer. Society's safer. Because you have to hold the cops, whether it's the local police or the state troopers or the FBI, the DA, the IRS, and the assistant district attorneys, mm-hmm. the state's attorneys, or the U.S. attorneys. You have to hold them accountable because, to me, that's what America is all about. Right. That's what being a patriot is all about. If you don't do that, then 
people are going to get screwed. Am now, I allowed to uh, say? You can say whatever you want. This is <laughs> you can drop the f bomb if you want to. Enjoy. Uh, oh, good. Uh, of course, that'll be used against you. I'm sure in some point. I'm sure. <laughs> so yeah. So you probably don't want to drop the f bomb now. Yeah. One day you might want to be a judge. They're going to bring this back and go. Didn't you t- yeah. ten years ago say on Larry Sharp show the f bomb? It's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're going to come back and get you somehow. Absolutely. So, but but then let's let's keep moving on on you personally. Now you're a prosecutor. You're dealing with some some big cases, right? You're on TV. Maybe you may not know. They can see you, you mean on. You a defense attorney. Didn't I say that? You said prosecutor. Sorry, mean... defense attorney. So I yeah, insulted yeah. you. I apologize. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't mean to insult I, you. I tried to forget that. Come <laughs> Sorry, on. Yes. No, no offense to my boys <laughs> yes. still, who, are, who are prosecutors. You're doing great jobs. So, so you're a defense attorney, and you're doing some big cases. You're having some big wins. Now you're on CNN, Fox, CBSN. You're on TV, and people are are watching. You're talking about talking about the uh, the R. Kelly. You're talking about the 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 the, the, uh, the, the people who are uh, getting their kids into school for free. The what are they call net. What do they call that? Varsity Blues. Varsity Blues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you talk about those. You talk about all these. Today you were talking about uh, Tibbets, right? Correct. Talking about Tibbets today on on Fox News. So you're doing all this stuff. Does that change the way you think about the system? Because now you're looking at it from up here, right? You're not looking at it from the ground. You're looking at it now from up here. Does it change the way you look at the system at all? Not at all. Why not? I, I, because of my experience on the ground, it helps me comment from up here. Mm. Because I can see and I can actually go. When I go on TV, when they call me for my opinion, and it's all the networks that I'm on, I'm not a political commentator. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm a legal commentator. Right. So I give straight legal analysis. And when I do, I can say, boom, this is what's going on. So I have defended Robert Mueller. Mm-hmm. I've also defended Rudy Giuliani. Mm-hmm. It's just depending on the circumstances and what is being um, asked of me at the time, I can say, look, one of the things that people didn't understand and one of the best compliments that I ever gotten or I get multiple times is people don't know my politics. Right. Mm-hmm. People ask me, we don't know who we don't know who you support. You support Trump or you support mm-hmm. I was like, dude, I support the law. I support, right. you know, belief in the system. Which is I will say what I think is correct based upon an interpretation of the law. And so when I when Giuliani, this is months ago, it's not the current stuff going on in right. Ukraine now. Okay. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay. Months ago or last year was talking about and defending Trump and people were upset. They were saying he's a former prosecutor. He was U.S. attorney. He was mayor. as America's mayor. I said, he's being a criminal defense attorney. Right. You may not have liked the way he did it. And sometimes he was babbling. And I don't know if that was particularly effective. But mm-hmm. one of the things he understood is that you have to defend a person like Trump, not only in court, but in the court of public opinion. So you're saying him going out there and people were hammering him about that, right? Oh, why is he talking so much, blah, blah. You're saying that well, him out there talking. CNN and MSNBC were hammering him. I'm sorry, yes. So, yeah. yes. They, so, CBS, which I'm on most of the time, took a neutral view. Okay. You know? So you're saying that he wasn't out there babbling or something wrong. What he was doing was trying to defend his, his client in the court of public opinion. Yeah. So the U.S. Supreme Court said many years ago, 30 years ago, had a case where a criminal defense attorney was was brought charges were brought against him in Nevada and they were upset because this criminal defense attorney defended his client he went on to the courtroom st- outside the court and defended his client they said that was unethical 
that was born by the State Bar of Nevada. Wow. Gentile, G-E-N-T-I-L-E, versus State Bar of Nevada. And the U.S. Supreme Court said he has a right to defend his client, not only in the courtroom, but in the court of public opinion. Just because the prosecution didn't like it or the State Bar didn't like it Mm -hmm. didn't mean, didn't infringe on his First Amendment rights. So this has come up in our in, yep. in some of my cases where the U.S. attorney, you know, talks mm-hmm. and says a lot of crap. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. And tries to poison the jury pool. And I've been very critical. I've been critical of the U.S. attorney. And they well, try to shut tell, me down. Tell me about that. Now, you, you had a, a, a semi-feud with, with our former um, uh, U.S. attorney here in New York, in New York right? Uh, Preet Bharara. Correct. Barara, Correct. Right? Why? Doesn't he, he doesn't he get to right with your point? Doesn't he get to go and have a and and have a um uh, a press conference and say I got the bad guy and he's horrible? If if you're gonna say my guy's not horrible, doesn't he have the right to go out there and say got the guy? He's a bad guy. Is it isn't it both okay or no? No, because I think prosecutors are and should be held to a higher standard because prosecutors are there to prove their case, right? They're supposed to do justice. That's what they're supposed to do. Poisoning the jury pool and having these big bombastic press conferences where you're like, blah, 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 this guy did this, this guy did that, this guy did this. How does that help justice? Mm. It does does help conviction rate, though. Uh, Right, because most (laughs) jurors are going to be like, oh, he got charged, therefore he must be guilty. One of the questions that I ask people if, you know, when I'm in a jury is I go sit next to my client and I ask the jury pool, who here believes that just because he's sitting here or she's sitting here that he must have done something wrong? Mm. And a number of hands will go up. Yep. And I and I don't argue with those people. I was like, why do you think that? Oh, because he, you know, clearly he must have done something wrong because he's sitting there. I said, thank you very much. Who else agrees with this person, right? <laughs> right. And that's my way of eliminating jurors who have those kind of biases. Right. And that's the reality of what we deal with as criminal defense attorneys in society. People are predisposed to believe that if you're arrested and charged, you must have done something wrong. Well, I hear the word indictment, right? Once I hear he got indicted. So as soon as I hear that word, I know most of my friends go, oh, he's guilty, <laughs> right? He got indicted. That means he's guilty, right? Mo- mo- many people think if you're indicted, it's the same as convicted, and sadly often it is. But people believe that. I mean, how do we – and this is, I guess, to Ben's earlier point. How do we educate people so that they don't think that because some guy got indicted that all of a sudden now they're guilty? Or do we? Is this a lost cause? The truth is that social media and Netflix have a profound effect on society. Netflix? Yes. Oh, my God. Making a murderer, and I've yet to see it. I want to watch it. Mm-hmm. I know one of the attorneys who defended um, the younger uh, person in the case. Those shows have had a greater profound effect on society. Sure. They're changing things, particularly with the younger generation. Right. The older generation, guys our age, Larry. (laughs) I know. Guys with gray hair. I got you. I got you. Yes. Yes. You know, are are the law and order generation, Mm -hmm. right? But Netflix has affected people much younger than us. Mm -hmm. And here's the hope for America. They will look at prosecutors with that discerning eye. 
Got they it. will look at the police with the skeptical vision. So Netflix is saving the country. I hope. <laughs> we hope. I love it. Okay. I'll say we just give a plug for Netflix. Netflix, you should send me some money. We're plugging you. Yes, absolutely. You guys should stop putting a subscription now. Thank you. So, okay. So with, with that in mind, is there a way for, is there a way for us? I, you know, I ran for governor last year. And one of the things I talked about I often. I supported you. Thank you, my friend. And and, and, and and can I make a confession to your to your callers? Go ahead. I'm a registered Democrat. There we go. See, I get <laughs> Democrats too, guys. I get Democrats too. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so one of the things I talked about, because I knew jury nullification was basically a non-starter. So I didn't talk much about it. I know Ben's probably mad at me right now. But I didn't really talk much about jury nullification. It's not Justice a- Sotomayor has actually said things to the effect that we should start thinking about this as a potential um, – as something we should basically think about. She didn't make too strong a statement. Right. She opened the discussion on it. But I talked about the idea of non-enforcement. And I talked about the idea of pardoning. And my thought process was, if as an executive, every time a, a certain crime, right, is uh, someone's convicted for a certain crime, the governor gives, starts giving blanket pardons for those crimes. Assuming he doesn't get impeached, would that stop DAs from prosecuting? They would just keep prosecuting and just keep getting pardoned. Like, oh, I was going to pardon it, but I'm going to keep going. Right. Why? Because, because it's built- he, here's what I would say, right? Okay. Prosecutor decides I'm going to, you know, prosecute whatever low-level marijuana mm-hmm. weed stuff. And I go, don't bother. My people are watching. The second you do it, I'm just going to pardon them. Don't waste your time. They do it. They prosecute. They convict. I give them a pardon. They prosecute. They convict. I give my pardon, right? So now my piece now goes to them, public opinion. This prosecutor, Prosecutor Jane Doe, she just spent 2000 4000 8000 of your taxpayer dollars prosecuting someone that she knew I was going to pardon. Not just once, twice. She's thrown your money in the garbage twice. By the way, she's up for re-election. You just uh, completed a 62-county tour, didn't you? I did. Let's assume you were governor for a second. Yep, for a second. Walk me down this road. How long do you think it would take to get to you along this route, right? What do you mean? If the local DA Mm -hmm. in, I don't know, which county? Sure, Broome County. Broome County. Sure. Right? Starts prosecuting a bunch of people, right? And and the reality is... um, and what's the major city in, in Binghamton? In, yeah, in, mm-hmm. in Binghamton, and, and I've had friends who many of who graduated from Binghamton mm-hmm. who've had some touches with law enforcement. Sure, Binghamton, yes, right? yes. Uh, it would take too long. What do you mean take too long? You're in Albany. You're yep. the governor, Governor Sharp. Yep. You're in Albany. Yep. There has to be a mechanism to get to you. You mean that it happened? No, they're going to get arrested. Yep. The DA is going to prosecute. Yep. He's going to throw the book. Yep. At these guys. Yep. Right, because they have the local relationship absolutely between the district attorney yep. and the police department. Oh no, no, you, what, what, you don't know libertarians well enough. There's Wait, enough really? bends in this country, in this state, that literally one of them will sit in that courtroom or check everything out and let me know exactly when everyone's convicted of that. They will literally be watching. Up, oh, it happened. Email goes to my office. I will know the day they're convicted. I don't care what county it's in. There are enough Bens in my party that would happily, eagerly do that 
without being paid just because, and they would watch, and I would, I would know the day it happened. So that's, that part I got down. My brothers and sisters in this movement would easily do that. So I will get the notice from all 62 counties the same day. That I've got covered. So assume I got that part covered. Tell me what happens next. That's a big ask, Larry. It is. But <laughs> that one I got ask. down. That's a big ask. Okay, let's assume that happens, right? Okay. There's still a process mm-hmm. that you still have to go to, even with the pardon. You sure. have to get it to the court. You get it, get a judge. Mm-hmm. You've got there are all these processes that absolutely. are in place that are built into the system to prevent fast action like that. Yep, absolutely. Right. It is a even now if somebody wants to get pardoned, there's a committee. Sure. They go through a process. There's a review. Only certain things actually get to the person you call his uh, his highness. Is that yes, what you call his him? Majesty. His Majesty, King yeah. Andrew Cuomo II. Yes, Correct. Yeah. Yes. So very few things that get to his desk. But, but, I, but again, says, I'm going to make this a priority. Whatever I, I made up the marijuana thing, but whatever the thing is, right? right? If I want a prosecutor to stop, let's say I put this in place. And maybe you're right. Maybe it takes two months before it happens or insert time frame here. But after two months, it happens once, happens twice. Now it's four months later. Now well, I'm – As a governor, you'd be able to remove a district attorney mm-hmm. – this is the great thing, and this is why you should be governor. See, and now you got me going. Now, yeah, right. All right. you would actually be able to remove a district attorney from prosecution of certain cases. This happened under uh, Pataki mm-hmm. and uh, Andrew. Um, I'm trying to remember his name. The uh, DA in the Bronx. Okay. Uh, in the 2000s, there was a case where a police officer was killed, and mm-hmm. this is before. I'm sorry. In the 90s, was Governor Pataki. And Rob Johnson, okay. if I remember correctly, there was a case where somebody was killed. I think it was a police officer. Johnson said he would not implement the death penalty. The uh, Pataki had him removed from the prosecution of the cases, put in an acting district attorney. So you could do that. Ah, that'd be a that'd be a lesson to them all, right? right. Mess with me, I'll get rid of you. That'd be great. Yeah, but I'd be a tyrant though. But I might do it anyway. <laughs> you never know. Maybe that's worth of being a tyrant. I'm not sure if it is or not. It's a problem. I, I'm I'm worried about being tyrannical, but maybe that's the right answer. I don't know. No, no, this comes up. Here, here's the thing. To their credit, and I am not at all a fan of the district attorney of this county. Okay. Mm-hmm. He who shall not be named. Okay. Right? But I am a fan of the district attorney in Brooklyn. I used okay. to work with him, Eric Gonzalez, right? He is in the Heinz tradition. He's done well. He he's he's put his money where his mouth is, or or actually continued the reforms, and has become the most progressive, potentially the most progressive prosecutor in the country, next to the dude in Philadelphia, Krasner. Mm, right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, they're both of them, the Manhattan and Brooklyn DA, have said that they will no longer prosecute low-level marijuana offenses. What that's done is contributed a steep decline in the amount of people going through the system. Sure, absolutely. And that's wonderful. Absolutely. That's not being replicated in Queens. Mm. And uh, there's the Queens DA died. Mm-hmm. And so now there's a new DA, and she says that she's going to do that. Let's let's see. Um, what's going well, to actually, happen? It's funny you brought that up because in Queens – there was a, there was a, a a race that was very close, right? right? And and um, one of the people is Tiffany Caban, right? Who was running, and she actually, in my view, it is only my view, uh, the Democrat establishment pushed her out. And to be forward, it's going to sound crazy for you, some of you uh, libertarians out there. She's a Democratic socialist, and I supported her because on criminal justice, she was right there with us. 
She at least was in our, she was there with us. She thought the way we thought. She was saying things that we wanted her to say. And I was glad she was saying them, right? I was glad. I mean, she's not going to be district attorney, but I'm glad she was saying, she was saying things that I wanted to hear. She was saying the right stuff, even though I'm, she was, she literally is talking about Medicaid for all, but she's going to be a district attorney. So it doesn't matter. But she was just talking that to get votes, which is fine. But we, we actually supported her because of that. At least she was saying the right thing. Because in Queens, we were concerned because it wasn't going well. And to have her saying the right stuff. After 30 years of Judge Brown mm-hmm. and uh, Richard Brown, who, uh, in my opinion, and I will not say God rest his soul because he was a terrible district attorney um, who died last year, there needed to be a sea change, mm-hmm. right? And But... Here's where I disagree with you. Please tell Tiffany me. Tiffany Caban was wholly unqualified to be district attorney. Oh, no doubt. Wholly oh, unqualified. No, no, no. We're not disagreeing on that. I'm not even saying Melinda Katz is qualified yes, to be district I, attorney. Yeah. She's not. Yep, correct. She was never a prosecutor. Yes. And, and I think it's important to have people who understand how a prosecutor's office works. But I think but it's that also. Wasn't, but nobody was running who had that. There were a couple of people. Really? Yes. Oh, I didn't. Mina Malik. Was uh, had been a prosecutor. She oh. understood how that worked. I didn't even hear about them. Yeah. I knew was, was Katz uh, Jose and Nieves. These were people who understood how well, how they have bad campaigns. They didn't have the support. There we go. That's they didn't have is. the support of the the progressive movement or the establishment. Right. right. But these were better candidates than either of them. Right. And and so you got to understand. I mean, Mina Malik, who I recently got to know. Because she and I both taught at Harvard Law School recently, right? So we were both teaching at the same time. Mm-hmm. We were teaching a trial ed class just last month together sure. at Harvard Law School. I actually became a big fan of hers because I saw her during the debate question the woman who's now, you know, the presumptive candidate because mm-hmm. nobody, no Republican is going to get the vote, right? Right, absolutely. Melinda Katz and asked her a question, a basic question of criminal law, like literally, like. I'm just trying to think of the analogy it, it, for for the layperson, what it was, the kind of question she asked. She asked, like, you know, um, if you get a home run and no one's on a base, how many runs do you score? <laughs> okay. Right? Got it. Mm. Or if you hit a grand slam home runs, how many runs does that count? Right? Mm-hmm. If you understand the baseball analogy. Right. Well, the cats couldn't answer the question. Wow. This is now the district attorney of Queens. Yes. Yeah. Tiffany Caban was was like wholly off the reservation, right? Mm-hmm. Because she her claim to fame, she's 29 years old, had been a public defender and she's a lesbian. Mm-hmm. That qualifies her to be Actually, district attorney. She's queer, just to be clear. Oh, thank you. Just want to be clear. You she's know, therefore lesbian, she's queer. qualified yes. to be DA. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. What have you done? Got You're it. a line public defender? Does that qualify you to be the chi- chief law enforcement agent in the state of New York? Let's go to another level of this. I could. It's a different. It's a. It's a change of shift. And before we go to shift, you guys, if you want to be on this program, please give me a call five seven three four two seven five four six three. Totally different side. It's law. It's 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 still the justice system, but it's law enforcement, particularly violence, violent cops. In New York City, I mean, you may not know this. You guys aren't in New York City. In New York City, if you're a cop, you are literally more likely to be shot by another cop than anybody else. I'm not joking. You are literally more likely to be shot by another cop than a bad guy or anybody else. What is going on with co- – are cops shooting more people 
or are we just reporting more or some combination or where's your two cents on this? I mean, you've got to, you've got to have an opinion. This is, I mean, this is tough, right? Mm -hmm. So I have a lot of friends who are police officers who are in the department. I know wonderful police officers. I work with some great cops to this day. I'm still friends with a lot of these guys. Um, there are a lot of bad seats. Okay. And I think it has to do with this shoot first, ask questions later mentality. I mean, the idea of this, the same week, just two weeks ago, we had two shootings. One made national news. Mm-hmm. One made local news. The national news was the deputy in Houston, deputy who was a sick S-I-K-H, mm-hmm. uh, deputy... Daliwal, mm-hmm. who was uh, shot in the head, basically oh, yeah. behind mm-hmm. the back. He, he was a turban-wearing mm-hmm. police officer who had made a traffic stop. Where, what state was that again? Texas. Texas, thank you. In Houston, he made a traffic stop. He was, the, I think, the first person in the country that was allowed to wear his turban while on duty mm-hmm. as a police officer. Um, he was assassinated. Mm-hmm. He made a traffic stop, walked away, turned his back. A shot in the head by the person who made the time. Obviously, he didn't think it was a threat. Obviously, yeah. Right? Because yeah. he had turned his back to this yeah. guy, went mm-hmm. back to his car, shot in the head. That same week, there was a police officer, a young Irish-American kid, um, who was killed uh, wrestling with a defendant who had a gun. Um, yeah, he, was, that, he was killed by another cop. Correct. Yeah. He was correct. And this is what, I mean, both are tragedies. Yep. But I really don't understand the NYPD one. The Houston one, who knows? Right. Right? Who knows? There was something happened. We don't know why that person shot the deputy mm-hmm. in the back of the head when he had been cleared right. from a traffic stop. Right. Who knows? In the one in New York, utterly preventable. What I'm saying, though, here is I bring this up because you brought the idea of part of the police culture comes from the DA. Yeah. Right? But part of it comes obviously from the training too. Why in the world and I, I say this because in my own personal world, right? I actually used to work with the police commissioner. I used to work with Bill Bratton, former police commissioner of Boston, former police commissioner of New York, former police commissioner of LA. Um accomplishment. And in my view, one of the best we ever had. Right? Most of the Value that people say Giuliani got from this policing was all Bill Bratton who put into play, and then he left. Well, there's an argument to be made that it was Ray Kelly under Dinkins who started most of the community policing, and the Bratton just took that and it's, got famous under Giuliani. It is possible, but I remember working for him in the civilian world. For a short time, I was a civilian. I happened to work for him at the time. I was actually selling for him. And at the end of every meeting, you know what he actually said? That's how he ended every meeting. He said, go out and do good things. That's how Bill Bratton ended meetings. This is just the regular world, right? We were selling stuff. We weren't saving lives, right? We were just making money. And he would actually end it with, go out and do good things. But what do I see? And this is just me seeing from TV, media, movies. So I don't know how real this is. But in every TV, movie, media, every time it's, come back safe. Come back home. Be safe. That's what every guy or gal ends their meeting. Every every sergeant or every or, or every lieutenant in every TV show and movie I see at the end when they're done talking to the cops, be safe, be safe, come back home. And I think to myself, why are you so afraid? Like, don't get me wrong, cops have a tough job. 
very clear. I'm not anti-cop in any way. My father was in law enforcement. He was a cop, and he was also a corrections officer. So I totally get that. I'm not saying that cops don't have tough jobs. They do. They see terrible things. They are in horrible situations, domestic violence, drugs, prostitution, horrible, horrible stuff. But not dangerous. Not. They're not getting shot. Depends where they're patrolling. No, it doesn't. Tell me where cops are getting shot. It doesn't. There are, Larry, there are places in this city... This city. Dangerous Do you know control. how many cops been killed in this city this year? Tell me, Larry. Two by other cops. Two by other cops. There hasn't been that... a cop killed in this city in two years. There are eight and a half million of us, and there are over okay. 20,000 Just... New York City cops. All right, Larry, this is where I'm going to disagree with you. Please Push disagree. back here on you a Push little back. bit. Right? There are places in this city where it is uh, dangerous. And cops, you know, they have to be careful. Absolutely, right? they have to be careful. What, course, what I'm saying is, what was tragedy about that kid was that I don't get it. But I'm telling you what it is. No, no, Larry. Larry, the, I, the I think we're, we're, they're we, afraid, so they're drawing their gun on everything. How do, you, how do you shoot when a guy, when your partner, your your fellow officer, is wrestling with another guy, and he says he's going for my gun? Why do you shoot? There is an incredible likelihood that you're going to hit your own you guy. You are literally, literally, this is what I'm saying, right? Look, what should have happened? Once the cops killed another cop, what should happen is immediately, oh, my God, let's rethink our training. What are we doing? Let's rethink our training. I don't believe cops are bad. I don't. I believe cops are poorly trained in a bad environment. That's what they are. I would agree with you. I think they're poorly trained in a bad environment. That's where I think they actually are. They're not bad people. The average cop is probably trying to do, be Superman, trying to save the world, I bet. Most of them probably want to do great things. My father wanted to. I get that. But they were in bad environments with bad training. I, I think it's 50-50. How do I know that? I, because I was a Marine. We're taught fire discipline. You know, we Marines, not me. I'm not a combat vet. But my brothers and sisters, we fight against people who shoot back. And we have harder rules of engagement than police officers do. And our people shoot back at us. And cops, they throw the gun in the garbage and run. Half the cops are shooting people in the back. I remember I was in a debate. And the debate I was in, uh, someone was talking about the idea of should people who kill cops get more time in jail, right, if they kill cops? And I said, no, the cops are just like us. I, if they kill somebody, if they get killed, it's terrible. And the person should be punished like anybody else. Punish people who kill people, cops included. You know, just because my loved one dies, I don't feel less because he wasn't a cop. And the guy next to me said, but they put their life on the line every day. I said, so do Marines. So do Marines. So what? Does that mean all of a sudden now there's a worse damage if you kill, if you kill a vet? Well, I think it depends on the reason you kill that cop, right? If it turned out that you know, you killed somebody and whatever, and then it wasn't because that person was a cop, then, you know, the law is clear. Yeah. Uh, murder one, that you have to have thought that this person was a cop. You kill them because yep. you kill that person because he or she was a police officer, yes. right? So the law is set up, I think, correctly in that situation. But, but in this debate, they were trying to create a separate law. The fact that they were a cop meant more time in prison. 
Well, that's and silly. that I was against. That's silly. If the person was off duty, you didn't know the person was a cop, and you killed him. I mean, that's Absolutely. silly, right? Yes. But you know, here's the thing, and 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 I can't get back over this kid mm-hmm. who was killed the same week as as the deputy in Houston, and it's an it's a tragedy, and people should be upset. Yeah, that these cops fired on this guy as he was going for. How do you shoot somebody? I got to give you the you worst one. Shoot in his place. The one before. Guy's got a fake gun in some kind of like chicken shop yes, or something like yes. that. Awful, fake gun. Awful gun. Four awful. cops walk up, see him. He's got a fake gun. He's literally saying "bang bang." He's saying he got mental issues. He's saying "bang bang." He's not pulling a trigger. He's saying the words "bang bang." They somebody yells gun, four cops start shooting, twenty one rounds get fired, he doesn't get hit, they kill a cop. What kind of training do you have? And here's what they did. This is my biggest issue. At that point, someone should have stepped back and said, We gotta retrain these guys. We gotta retrain It should have happened in the fall of nineteen ninety nine with the Amadou Diallo case. Hundred percent yes. Right? Yes. This man who was on his own stoop. Yep. Didn't speak English. Turns around, he pulls out his wallet, these anti-crime officers. So that's another thing to discuss mm-hmm. is that when you talk about dangerous things, people put themselves, you know, these cops before the war on drugs. Now the war to get guns off the street. Mm-hmm. And I know you have strong feelings about that, Larry, you mm-hmm. know, but they putting themselves, it should have changed in 90 Yes. I Once the, the man pulls out his wallet and he gets shot. I mean, uh, Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen had the song. It was forty-one shots. Yes, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, that should have changed. That it hasn't. And that's my problem. It's the the culture is not changing. And I again, I go to my Marines. When when we have a problem in the Marine Corps, something goes wrong. The first thing we do is an after action report, and we change the training so it doesn't happen right. again. We go, that was a bad thing. We don't want this to happen. And we and we, the problem I find is we have situations where we think that by default every cop is perfect or every cop is evil and neither is true. And we have to make sure that we're training them the effective way. They shouldn't be pulling their gun out right away. They shouldn't be so damn afraid. They shouldn't want to shoot all the time, right? If, if Why aren't cops literally saying, put the gun down or stop or pulling out a taser or this, look, I don't want them hitting people over the head, but I'd rather hit someone over the head than shoot them. I mean, it's, I'm with it, you. There are many ways you could handle this. Anyway, I'm you have to, um, someone, uh, did we just lose the guy who was talking about police brutality? Ah, see, a guy called me yapping so much we lost our (laughs) call. No worries. All right. I'm going to still deal with this issue. I'm going to deal with um, uh, Daniel. I'm going to have Daniel chat. He wants to talk a little bit about law enforcement also. Daniel, are you there? Yes, I am. How are you, Daniel? Talk to me. Yes, I just had a quick question. Um, Right now, as it stands, when in the course of law enforcement, there are errors and omissions and people wind up hurt or injured in some way, the taxpayers are victimized a second time in the jury awards and settlements. So my question to the guest is, would he favor the requirement of professional liability insurance for all law enforcement personnel so that there's some degree of personal individual accountability for any malfeasance or nonfeasance? There is a libertarian idea, which you may not be aware of. And the idea is that why in the world when cops make errors, does the state or the people pay for their errors, right? And why instead aren't they required, like doctors or any of the professionals, to ha- carry their own insurance, right? So a cop has to carry his own insurance. If the cop keeps making errors, soon he can't be insured. 
And if he can't be insured, he's just airing himself out of a job, right? And if he moves someplace else, right? If you're a bad cop in city A, you can move to city B and get hired. But if you can't get insurance, doesn't matter where you go, <laughs> you can't get hired. So that's the con. And then the concept is if the, if the cop screws up, then a cop pays, right? His insurance pays, right? So if he's a bad cop, then his insurance rates go up. If he's a good cop, his insurance rates stay down. That's the concept. What do you think about that? I think it's great in theory. Mm-hmm. just doesn't work in practice. The not? reality is that most police officers are not getting salaries that they can afford this kind of insurance. I mean, who's going to insure for shooting people? Yeah, that's I, a good point. I, I just I, – I don't see it as any – sort of practical reality or possibility in this situation. And particularly, remember, um, cops are state actors. Yeah. Under the law, they represent the state. So mm-hmm. even the local cop, the, let's just use New York City, or I don't know, I'm sure where you were calling from in upstate New York, your local police officer represents the jurisdiction. But is also then, if they make an arrest, if that person, that police officer, he or she makes an arrest, that officer then is is now the witness for the state in the prosecution. So in essence, they are both the city and state actor. So ultimately, it really does fall upon the taxpayer to cover that person. Well, you said something once before. You said that you hated the fact that in New York State, they say it's the people against somebody, <laughs> right? Like Absolutely. That, but I hate that. You hate that, and that in reality, who defends the people? It's you. Right. You're, the public defenders and you actually defend the people. Correct. It's for the state against the people. So, but with that idea. Some states are good about that and mm-hmm. they say it's the state. The United States government is actually great about this. It's one of the few things they get right. Okay. They literally say, we represent the government. Mm-hmm. I get annoyed when a prosecutor gets up and says, I represent the United States. No, no, no. I will correct that prosecutor <laughs> in front of the jury because they know better, because they'll know better if they're going up against me. Right. No, no, I'm sorry. We represent the United States. Right. Absolutely. You know? So, but if we look at how much money is being paid out in certain jurisdictions, counties, states, horrible lawsuits, right, that are just being paid out. In theory, wouldn't we actually save money if we said, well, we're paying $10 million a year Still anyway. the budget, Larry. Right? And I'm talking about a budget. I am, right? We're paying $10 million in lawsuits from our state actors, whomever these state actors are, right, all these dollars. What if we instead give them all – take $5 million and give them all raises so they can buy insurance? And we now say we're no longer liable, right? The, the, the county or jurisdiction or whatever the case may be. We are no longer liable. We're not paying. Sorry. We're not. Sue all you want. I get it. We're not paying. trying to find an insurance company that will insure police officers for shooting people. Um, I think you would find one. Okay. And the reason why I say it is. Uh, I, it's the, not my area. If there is, then. I, the I reason why it. I say it is the vast majority of cops don't shoot people. Right? And that's a fact. The vast majority don't shoot people. That's correct. Right? Some do, obviously. But the vast majority of cops don't shoot people. A couple do. So they can make all that money on those who don't shoot people, right? And then they'll have to pay out on the one guy who shoots people, right? That guy they've got to pay out on. The rest, they're just making tons of cash. What you wind up doing is creating – you're doing what, what insurance loves. Government creates a market for insurance, right? You have to insure your car. Government made a market for insurance. You have to insure this. Government made a market for insurance, right? You're a lawyer. You have to have this kind of insurance. Government now just made a market for insurance. Yeah. So insurance companies love when government makes a market. We're not going to get rid of our cops. So we're going to keep cops. There's over 900,000 law enforcement officers in this country. Over 900,000. 
That's nine hundred thousand. The numbers. Yes, that's nine hundred thousand. All libertarians know that stuff. So yes, so yes, that's, that's nine hundred thousand new I customers. Need to get educated. Yeah, exactly. That's nine hundred thousand new customers for an insurance company. You tell me, actuaries can't come up with a product that they could buy? Yeah, I think they would. And it's guaranteed government money. There's nothing that financial people love more than guaranteed government money. Boy, they wake up in the morning with a smile on their face when they know they got some guaranteed government money coming. So I, I don't know. Um, my view is I see your point. It's a very hard thing to get across. It's a cultural change for sure. Um, I think you'd have people fight it. And to your point and say this is illegal or unconstitutional and say this can't be done. They're state actors. You can't do that. I'm not sure it's unconstitutional. But I'm, I'm just I'm people would fight it though. They would I, fight I, it. Yeah, absolutely. There would yeah. people fight it. I imagine the – Police unions, certain police unions would fight it. Sure. You know? And I think, actually, it makes a lot of sense. This way you weed out the bad guys. Absolutely. You know? It actually would make, I think, I think it might make unions happier because then they're not paying for this. Hmm. Right? It may even make them happier. Who knows? I, I'm they not may, really sure. It may make it part of union dues. Who knows? Maybe, know? maybe, that, maybe the unions become the guys who insure them. It's another way of doubling union dues. Well, to an extent, that's what the PBA does, right? They they represent people. Yeah, but they don't pay level. out. There's a right, difference. They right, have to pay sure, out, sure, right? They right. would have to pay out then. Right, right. So you could double. You could buy your insurance through the union if you wanted to, and the union now gets a cut of everything, and blah blah blah. So right. look, I'm a union mob boss after all. <laughs> so, so yes, I'm not anti-union. I'm definitely not anti-union. But my my point is, I think that could work. Daniel, did we did we at least deal with your question or no? Yeah. Yes, yes, it does answer my question. Thank you very much. Of course. Have a good night. Thanks for calling in. Good night. Thank you. So, yeah, I mean, this is the yeah, kind of, I mean, this is the this is the kind of thing I'm talking about when it comes to um, you know, trying to fix a system. I don't want to focus on punishing cops. Not that we shouldn't punish cops who mess up. We should, but if we focus on punishing cops, then all we get is cops rebelling, right? I, I when I covered the state last year. One of the groups of people who I talk to often were corrections officers. And for those of you who don't know, in New York State, for many years, multiple years, corrections officers did not have a contract. They went three years without gaining, getting a raise. And their environment got worse, meaning now they were being sued. Now they were being attacked. Now they were being you know, hurt, all this kind of, literally being stabbed. And they'd, they'd get stabbed. And then someone would say, well, why did you let them stab you? What? I mean, things like that. Right? There were all kind of problems back and forth. And you think, well, then they would learn their lesson. Of course not. They, they, it wound up being an environment where so many of them just didn't care. There was so much punishment, they, a lot of them just stopped caring. Horrible environment to work in. The average, li uh, the average lifespan of a, um, a correction officer is 58 years old. When I was out there talking to these guys, mostly guys, there were some gals too. I don't want to be sexually. Most of them were guys, but they were, uh, they were gals too. Um, most of these guys I talked to, Every one of them, every one of them knew someone who had committed suicide. Every one of them knew someone who had committed suicide. Every one of them knew someone who was uh, either an alcoholic or a drug addict active. Right now, they knew a guy who was right now working who was either an alcoholic or a drug addict. One of those two. That's the environment they lived in. So what did I say? I say, I want to get you a contract and I want to change the system. And I want to bring you aboard to help me fix that system because I wanted them to be heard to change the system. Now, some people got mad at me and said, corrections officers are evil. They, they kill uh, people in prison. And some of them do. That's a fact. 
There have been prisoners who've been killed by corruption. That's absolutely a fact. And my point was I can focus on calling them all evil and focus on punishing them. That's an option. Or I can focus on changing the system so people don't get killed anymore. And I think the cop thing is the same thing. While I do want to punish bad cops, of course, I don't want to focus on punishing cops. I want to focus on fixing the system so the bad cops go away and the good cops move to the top and the mediocre cops become better. What happens now is many of the mediocre cops become bad or apathetic. The good cops become apathetic or they leave. And the bad cops become monsters because that's the environment they're in right now. So, of course, that happens. So I'm really about system change. So let me ask you a hard question since I just went down that road. If you could make a system change in a criminal justice system, what's the number one thing? What would you change? How would you make – I mean there's so many issues and problems I know. There's a lot of issues, a lot of problems. You could probably sit here for another two hours talking about all the problems in the system. You have magic powers. You can change one thing. What do you change? Oh, not even magic powers. You could focus on fixing one aspect. What do you work on? The first thing that comes to my mind, literally as you are saying this, is the incentivization for the arrest. Ah, okay. okay. So police officers are incentivized by the arrest. They mm-hmm. get credit for the arrest they make, not whether that arrest results in a conviction. Ah, there we go. Yes, got it. So that would change if the police officer was responsible to ensure a conviction. And I'm not sure to incentivize him to cheat, mm-hmm. but to actually make a good arrest that would actually stay fit, that, that would actually be prosecutable and sustainable and convictable. I'm creating new words here. Sure, I love it. You yeah, know, oh, good, yes. Uh, for the district attorney, then I think you would have less stupid arrests. What if you adjusted this? Now, I love this concept of changing the incentives, right? right. In, in, instead, of it, uh, instead of a cop or cops being incentivized by arrests, instead being incentivized literally in today's world – by surveys, do does your community believe they're safer? Literally by surveys. In I have words, a tough time with that. Say again? I have a tough time with well, that. Well, let me go to two parts that I'm concerned about why I say this. Um, if you tell a cop that he or she is responsible for conviction, it seems a bit unfair to me because they're not prosecuting, right? So if you've got incompetent prosecutors or anything like that, then they're going to be punished in a way or rewarded – if they happen to have good or bad prosecutors above them, right? They have talented prosecutors. They can be kind of crappy and they'll still be okay. They've got bad prosecutors. They, they may be punished, right? And also there's always the incentive to cheat, right? To now falsify evidence, et cetera, et cetera, right? That's a concern about that one. The arrest piece, though, I think is a double piece. And that is if I'm incentivized by arrests, if I stop arresting, am I a bad cop? Which means if people are complying with the law, Maybe I look like a bad cop because I'm not arresting anybody. What are you doing? So first thing, mm-hmm. cops are given greater credit when they make a felony arrest. Oh, is that right? Yes. Okay. Versus a misdemeanor. This was a big issue in Brooklyn because the issue that we'd hear from the street cop was, they put this through as a felony in Manhattan. What are you doing? Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, no, this is not a felony. You know, this right. is, I mean, yeah, I mean, you can make anything a felony technically, but you know what? This is worth a misdemeanor prosecution. So the smart cops understood that and they brought better cases mm-hmm. to us, right? 
the issue that you're bringing about, I'm not sure what you mean by survey, but like, you in, know. In some way saying if you have a safer community, then your police force is good. Right. So this, right? Go, this goes back to the whole Comstat. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you ever discussed this on your show, but the the idea of uh, which was started under Ray Kelly under Dinkins, mm-hmm. the idea of, of statistics looking at precincts and which was uh, apparently William Bratton is the one that supposedly where it got national. But my understanding was a lot of this community policing started yep. under Ray Kelly, the, under Dinkins, not under Bloomberg. So. When you're looking at this and you're looking at the numbers, that this was uh, made famous um, to the extent that it was a famous show is The Wire. Yeah, I remember. And in season three of The Wire, you had the CompStat meetings, right? Community statistics. Yep. So you had um, the commander who created Hamsterdam. I remember. Right? Yep. And and you had the number of arrests go down. And ultimately, after a while, they figured out what he had done basically created safe zones mm-hmm. for the sale of drugs. Yep. And, and at a certain point, there was a guy who said, he legalized drugs. Yes, right? that's right. Yep. And it was it was unbelievable, uh, and it was amazing, and it was But brilliant. in the TV show, it actually was successful. It was. Right, it, and I don't know if that actually happened. Until, until the NY, I'm sorry, the Baltimore uh, Police Department, the city of Baltimore Police Department, chiefs got on to what he had done. Right. Dramatically reduced crime. Right. Safe zones mm-hmm. where as long as there was no violence, drug dealers were not assaulted, beat up, and all the people that were using drugs were given social services, mm-hmm. right? So I think the world is changing right? somewhat. So why wouldn't a survey be good then? In other words, why wouldn't it be some form – maybe the survey is the wrong word. But in some way, shape, or form, you go through X community, whatever community is. And you grade it, right? People grade it. Hey, is this safer? And they go, yes. Or they go, no, one through 10 or whatever that thing is. There's some way of grading it that says, you know, this, I mean, we have technology to do this. We can do it on an app in theory. I mean, there's many ways we could do this, right? Maybe you go to the police station. Maybe you you go door to door. Insert thing here. You do whatever the, the, the way it may be. You want, might want to make it happen to where now we can say, is it getting better or not? If it's getting worse, the police force is failing. If it's getting better, the police force is succeeding, regardless of whether they make one arrest or a million arrests, regardless of whether they have felonies or misdemeanors. But if the people are feeling safer, they're winning. Well, I think the problem you have is in certain communities, you have the the brushback between the militarized policing yep. of certain communities, absolutely, which has gone over the top to the lack of community involvement mm-hmm. of the same police officers. So certain communities, you've taken this very militarized style of policing to the detriment of the community policing. Absolutely. The cop who knew his beat, mm-hmm. who knew everyone in his beat, who talked to people, and now you have these, a lot of young knuckleheads mm-hmm. going through the community, and you know, in, in in black communities, you have these young white cops going in trying to bust heads mm-hmm. instead of talking to people, right? And building trust. So, so let's go to that point. Do you, do you think the criminal justice system is inherently racist? I know it's a loaded question. Answer any way you want. 
Do you think, I mean, this is what people will say all the time. It's racist. That's the problem. You got to blow it up and restart it. It's racist. It's racist. Do you have to be true? Yes. Or, or, or is there a, a gradation? Let I me mean, tell you, some of the best you... people that I worked with were mm-hmm. white cops who mm-hmm. patrolled some of the worst areas of Brooklyn, Brownsville, Crown Heights at the time before it got gentrified, before mm-hmm. Crown Heights got gentrified. I mean, some of these guys, I'm going to give you a shout out, Nick Salviti, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> these guys were the best. Honest, decent people, mm-hmm. right? Who went through these communities and did God's work, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I don't believe it's inherently racist. Okay. I, I think that there are problems, mm-hmm. systematic problems. But when you have guys that are smart, who know how to talk to people, they built greater trust than like the militarized policing model that goes in here. And and tries See, I, to I feel enforce like, itself. I feel like the it's individual. Will on society. I think like the individual cop is no more racist or not racist than the individual insert thing here, right? Uh, truck driver, I don't know, Uber driver, insert thing here, right? The same. But I think a system does make them racist. I think it does, and I think the system is bad because of one critical thing: the war on drugs. I think the war on drugs has created a system that makes people racist. Let me explain my point here. Because of civil asset forfeiture, because of having to fund the war on drugs, because of having to get arrests, because of having to fund your own uh, department, you basically have created a, a police force that has to hunt to survive, right? That's what we've created. It has to hunt to survive. So where are you gonna hunt? You're not gonna hunt in the gated community. Those people all have good lawyers. Those people know the mayor. Those people, you know, don't don't carry cash either. They carry credit cards. They don't carry cash. Where are you going to hunt? You're going to hunt in immigrant communities. People who don't trust banks. They keep lots of cash. Uh, small business owners, lots of cash. Drug dealers, lots of cash. And it does black market, lots of cash. You're going to hunt there. Not just that. Immigrant, brown, and black because many of them are afraid of the police. Don't know their rights. Don't have good lawyers. Don't vote. So there's no way of getting back. So you start hunting in these communities. As you begin to hunt in your communities, you've got some guy, some gal, she joins the force. She feels like she's going to do well. She's not racist than anybody else is. But all of a sudden now she's trained that you have to hunt in brown, black immigrant communities. So for six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, almost everybody she arrests is brown or black. At one point she believes you're brown and black, probably guilty. She begins to see it that way because that's all she sees. The thing I remember is I was a kid. I was probably eight or nine years old, youngster. And my father had a, a, a friend who stayed in the police force. When he left the police force, this guy stayed in the police force. And he had gone undercover for many years. And when he came back up undercover, we were walking around the Bronx talking, whatever. I was little. He had a son who was like maybe a year or two younger than me. And we're all walking together in the Bronx. I still remember this. And he's pointing at people. And tell him things like, yeah, that guy, yeah, he, he's going he's gonna to be Robinson. Oh, that guy, yeah, he's probably – oh, her, yeah, she'll be laughing. killing people. Say again? It's awful. I shouldn't be laughing. Yes, but that's what he was doing because he has spent so much time around so many bad people in the underground. It had poisoned to believe that everybody was bad. And to be clear, he was black. My father was black. He was black. This was not a racial thing. I mean maybe it was, but that, it wasn't because he was racist. It was because he thought everybody who I worked with was this way. So now well, all of these people are that. That's the war on drugs, Larry. There's another yes. aspect here which um, needs to be addressed. And Please. this deals with the stop and frisk policy mm, under okay. Bloomberg. 
Stop and Frisk wasn't about drugs. What was it about? It was about guns. Got it. So these guys and there were cops when I and again remember I was I haven't been a prosecutor since two thousand early two thousand six. Mm-hmm. So now we're talking more than almost fourteen years, right? Since I was last a prosecutor. In that time, there was a mentality amongst the police officers, the cops, the anti-crime cops. These were the Plain Coast cops who went into so-called the worst areas, and they were out there. They were hunting for guns. Mm-hmm. They were not hunting for drugs. They didn't care about drugs. They were looking for guns. So stop and frisk. You'd thrown up 100 guys against the wall in a neighborhood to get, like, Zero guns. Right. Right? Uh, yes. I forget the percentage of what it was. It was a ridiculous. Less than 1% of the times you would throw up a guy against the wall. There was always some young black kid mm-hmm. getting thrown up against the wall in a neighborhood. And you would get maybe one gun out of a thousand times. Well, you get that one gun. But how much resentment did you create yes. in the communities? Right? Absolutely. This is where communities stop trusting cops. This is where... The, the the rift started and and obviously it started you know before Bloomberg but the fact that the mayor took this very aggressive stance and and supported this I mean people weren't stopping and frisking people in in Fidei. right right yes. <laughs> they weren't stopping yes. and frisking people in Tribeca right right right, right. they yes. weren't stopping and frisking people in Park Slope absolutely right yes they were stopping and frisking people in Brownsville mm-hmm. in Jamaica in yeah. Queensbridge and yeah. the South Bronx and wherever else oh Sobro oh, South Bronx yeah I mean, this so, is yes. what was happening, and so the, the, it was the war on guns. And I know you're a big Second Amendment guy. So you, you so know, you're saying is, this is was what war on guns? Yeah, that's what but, it was. That's but, what stop and frisk is about. But isn't that still the war on drugs? Isn't the war on guns, particularly in New York City, isn't that still the war on drugs? I mean, it's it's not like for drugs, but all the guys who have guns are drug dealers. There were so many warrants executed, and I dealt with this. As, and again, I'm speaking in the early 2000s. I don't get these kind of cases as a defense lawyer. Most of the work I do is white collar, and mm-hmm. you know, occasionally we'll get a case like this, right? But the reality is that these arrests, they're looking for guns. Mm-hmm. They're not looking to bust pot dealers. They were looking to bust cocaine dealers with guns. That's what a lot mm-hmm. of the warrants that I – that I dealt with, you know, as a prosecutor were about. So if you got a, there was this feeling amongst the cops, if you got a gun off the street, didn't matter if the arrest was, you know, the gun was suppressed mm. and it didn't matter if we didn't put the case in the grand jury. Yeah, it's Brooklyn. It's not Manhattan. Right. Got it. The Manhattan prosecutor's idea is very different. They're like, eh, you know, cause the appellate court in Manhattan overlooking Manhattan was very forgiving to Manhattan. Whereas the appellate court overlooking Brooklyn, which also overlooked Queens, which also overlooked Staten Island, was was much more critical. Mm-hmm. So that's the... so you're you're saying that 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 the war on drugs and the and the, and the stop and frisk was stop and frisk. Doesn't that by default make a lot of cops who weren't racist? Doesn't that make them kind of racist by default? And I want to be clear: I'm not talking just white cops. This is Hispanic cops, black cops, Asian cops. Sure. This is cops. If you look at the history of corruption in New York City, a lot of these corruption cases involve cops of color. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why people think, well, it's the white cops. No, it's the mm-hmm. cops. Yeah. It's it's just cops. It's it's not I I think it's a if, culture. 
Yes, I think if it's not black versus white, it's blue versus whatever. Blue versus brown, blue versus black. I don't think it's white versus black here. I think a lot of cops have the same issue because they're doing the, the same thing. The guy from when I was – and I'm look, I'm older than you. So when I was when I was nine, it was still the 70s, right? So And this is the guy pointing his finger. He's black. And, and the South Bronx back then was, was still a little bit Jewish back in those days, a little bit. But it was heavily black, Puerto Rican, um, maybe a little bit Asian, but heavily black and Puerto Rican, right? With a little bit Jewish, a little bit Asian in it. And he was pointing at people who were black and Hispanic. They were black and, and they weren't Hispanic. They were Puerto Rican. That, the area was very Puerto Rican, right? Not Dominican. If you people who know the difference in difference <laughs> between Dominicans and Puerto Ricans, you may not know that if you don't live in New York City. There's a difference. Uh, but but where, when and I was not a Mexican, kid, that's good. And they weren't Mexican. Yes. yes. When I was a kid in the '70s, it was heavily Puerto Rican. So they were, he was pointing for, but these people and said, "Yes, these guys are all bad." His own people. I think his wife was Puerto Rican, who he divorced because, and eventually he actually killed himself. That man actually committed suicide, which again is another issue that 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 cops, corrections officers deal with. Law enforcement deals with suicide issues tremendously. It's horrible. They have a harsh job, but they have a better chance of killing themselves than they do of being killed by someone else. And I guess this, this is what I keep going down to. I feel like, and this goes back you know, to. You. I love the fact that you're talking about this. This, this I, is the, the fact you go. You went. You said something that made a lot of sense to me. You said you think the average person thinks that the district attorney, you know, is a good guy no matter what, and everything he or she says is wonderful and truthful and perfect. And why would they ever do anything wrong? The good guys. Yes, they're the good guys. Yeah. Always, they're the good guys. I think we have an issue with cops too. A lot of people think that. Because they're cops, they're good. And the problem I have with, with, with cops, this is a personal issue that I have. And again, I'm not any cop, but it's one issue that drives me crazy. If you're a truck driver, if you're a lawyer, if you're a consultant, if you're a tech professional, whatever it is, if I told you about a, a lawyer who was bad, did something wrong, you'd say, wow, that lawyer sucks. You would say it, right, if he's a bad lawyer. You might ask me details. Is he really bad? Let me see. But if you found out, wow, that's some bad stuff, you would say, bad lawyer, right? Cops won't say that. Yep. That's my problem, that cops won't go, yeah, bad cop. Let me brush back on you a little bit. Please. Okay. Uh, the current police commissioner, James O'Neill, mm -hmm. in my opinion, is an honorable man. Okay. Uh I saw him on New York One before he was police commissioner and a couple years back talking about the case in North Carolina mm -hmm. uh, from a couple years ago where it was caught – an assassination was caught by a cell phone camera of a guy who had witnessed a cop chase some guy into a field. And there was a guy like behind a fence taking a photo. It turns out he was a Dominican. He was a, an immigrant. And he, he, he videotaped this encounter. And this police officer was chasing this guy after a traffic stop. The guy was running his back away from the cop. Cop just squared up, shot him in the back, and then came by and planted something. Oh, I remember that. Yep. All caught on this guy's cell phone. Yep. Right? This is what changed the world. James O'Neill went on television, on New York One, mm -hmm. and said, this is before he was commissioner. Mm -hmm. He goes, that is one of the worst things I've ever seen in my life. That was an assassination. Now, I know some people will say that's easy to say and all this stuff. But contrary to your point, cops still don't say that stuff, right? Yeah. And, and I thought that was like, wow, I hope this guy gets to be police commissioner one day. And he did. And he recently was vilified by the PBA, Pat Lynch, 
who went after him because he fired Officer Pentaleo, mm-hmm. or said right. he was going to agree with the firing of Officer Pentaleo, and and Pat Lynch took aim at Commissioner O'Neill for firing Pantaleo. Pantaleo is a bad cop. Yes. He's a bad cop. Absolutely. Okay. He should have been charged criminally. He should have been gone down years ago. Not having you and I and our taxpayer dollar pay for this. <laughs> yes. This awful human being who, who choked this man to death, pulled him down to the ground. It wouldn't let go. Yep. I mean, ugh. Yes. Disgusting. Yeah, and but, I know cop friends of mine who supported Pantaleo, and I just think you're wrong. Yes, and th- that's my point. These two guys that you're talking about, there was literally video evidence. Of course you got to say bad. And the sample is some cops still don't say bad. Right. There's cops who support – I forgot the guy's name. The guy who killed Philando Castillo. I don't remember the cop's right. name. Right. There's, that guy murdered his, his, someone in front, of his, in front of his kids. At one point, he's got to go, yeah, there's some bad cops. You just got to say it. And I, 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 it drives me crazy that it's so hard to find a cop to just go, yeah, that's a bad cop. Larry, actually, you changed my view on Amber Geiger. Oh, yes. You know, absolutely. Uh, you were the one who actually put things in perspective on yep. her. And uh, she got a 10-year sentence for shooting oh, yes. a man in his own home while eating ice cream. Yep. And my initial thought was on the law. Clearly, she didn't go into that apartment thinking that she was going to kill him. Right. Right? I think that's obvious. Yes, that that's not murder one. I get that. That's right. not. I'm gonna go kill a guy eating ice cream today. I'm sure she was not thinking that. Right. But you know, in in my view on this, and and again, you know, at least we, when we were talking about it, I thought about it, and and I said to myself, why is there shoot first, ask questions later? That's mentality. my entire issue. And look, think about the reverse. Mm-hmm. If if she, I I actually think she should be punished more because she's a cop in this case. More. I would agree with you. And people think less. No, you're a cop. You're trained. So you come into your house and you think this man is eating your ice cream in your house. I get it. You believe that. And I believe she believed that. Why is it, oh, my God, pull a trick of fire? Why isn't it, drop the ice cream, idiot? Why would you take my – get up. Uh, I'm a cop. Why uh, isn't it any of those things, just, right? Just why horrific. isn't it just anything terrific. besides – why isn't it call back up? Why isn't it called 911? Hey, I got a guy in my house. Cops, come. Why That's the first thing she should have done. Things? Hey, any I think there's somebody things. in my house. Come back. I think back. there's someone in my house. Yeah. Yes, anything besides shooting to death. And of course, how can you not think it's racist? What if it was a imagine, What if it was a white woman? In, in that, in that, you think she would have shot a white woman? No. Would she have shot an Asian woman? I got to think about that. Yes, I mean, I'm serious. <laughs> do, what do you think? I mean, obviously, we'll never know. But do you think it's – if it isn't race, race so it's at least because he was a man, again, why are you so afraid? You're a trained law enforcement officer. The fact that she was sexting didn't help her either. You yes, know. exactly. But the point is why are you doing that? And I want to think about the opposite. What if it was reversed? What if there was a, a man who walked into his house, uh, into, into, in, into uh, her house, black man, legally authorized to carry a firearm in his home? He'd walk into the Which house. Which everyone is in Texas. I'm saying yes, but assuming this guy was one of those legally authorized to, ha- to, to have that home, the, the uh, gun in his home, and be carrying, he draws his pistol and shoots her. Think he gets 10 years? No. No way in the world gets 10 years. No way in the world gets 10 years. No way in the world. This is where you changed my view on this whole situation. I always, in my mind, and I say this often, I want people to think of police force as an extension of us. I was talking to a guy from another country, 
and he was asking about how I feel about cops, libertarianism and stuff. And I said, look, cops are required. They're important. We have to have them. I got it. We need to have cops. I said, but I want you to ask you a question. I said, you see, we were sitting at my stoop at the time. And, it's a, and you know where I live in Queens, we live next to each other. So next to, next to me, I, I point at the, at the house next door and I say, if you see a guy in that window and you see a guy right now who's smoking a joint right now, smoking a joint, do you think it's ethical? Not that you need to, but ethical, not legal, ethical for you to kick that door in, grab that, 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 that joint from his mouth and put that guy in handcuffs. He said, of, of course not. I said, then why can cops do it? Cops are an extension of us. Right? I'm not saying you need to do it. I don't mind you outsourcing the violence to cops. We pay taxes for that. I get that. I'm okay with that. But ethically, if you couldn't do it, why can cops? They're, they're, they're an extension of us. Not the reverse. You look out there, there's a guy, he's got a knife, he's getting ready to stab a kid. Is it ethical? I'm not saying you should do it, but is it ethical for you to kick that door in, grab that knife from him, and throw him in a corner, hold the knife at him until the cops come? Of course, yeah, of course it's ethical. So cops should do that. Yeah. They're, they are an out, they're an outcropping of us. And so every time something happens, I always think, what happens if it wasn't a cop? What happens if it wasn't a cop? And if the answer is burn them, then burn the cop worse. Because the cop's better trained. The cop's supposed to know better. It makes me think of that kid who was killed two weeks ago. The kid, the police officer, yes. shot by his own uh, team because... He yelled, he's going for my gun. Why would you shoot? Yes. Did you not think there's a good chance you're going to hit him? Or go grab his gun. Yeah. Why? Just go grab his gun. Jump on top of Jump him. Jump on top of him and grab his gun. Yeah. That's that's my point. That, and again, I don't think these are bad cops. I, I want to say it again. This is a bad system with bad training and these guys are messing up. And we think because we give them a badge and a gun, they, they're magically supermen. Can I, they're can not. I, can they I need to be trained. add a personal story to that? Um, when I was in law school, I took trial advocacy with the um, now deceased, may rest in peace, Charles Hines, mm-hmm. uh, taught trial advocacy. And we learned this story of, uh, I forget his name was Diamond, this defendant. was a police officer who, who shot... He was charged with murder. He was off-duty police officer charged with murder of Trudy Doyle. And it's a classic trial ad day. I don't want to smile because of murder. But the, in the story, he, he, he shoots this woman. The cop. The cop mm-hmm. uh, in the chest. And so they, the, they charge him with murder. And there's all these extenuating factors that says it wasn't murder and all this stuff. But one of the things that came out, I learned in law school. Cops are trained to shoot center mass. Oh, yes, absolutely. Right? So Marines, they're, by the way. They're not trained to shoot to disarm. Correct. And so that's really important to understand that. Is that something that should change? Because, Why? Because you're trained to kill. Cops are trained to kill. Yes, but the reason why you shoot center mass is not because you're trying to kill. You shoot center mass to make sure you hit. Yeah. But I, I get where you're going. I mean, if, if I try to aim for your arm... I'll miss. Right. Particularly when I'm stressed, particularly when stuff's hitting the fan. Cops can't hit now with their current. I mean, 41 shots and two hit a guy, 21 shots, you only kill your own partner. They can't shoot now. And now you want to turn two people in the arm? Do center mass. Just have them not shoot as much. My point is the job is hard. It, I mean, the suicide rate is high. The stuff they deal with is insanely difficult. It's just not that dangerous. And the stats are there to prove it. 
It's just not that dangerous. Well, maybe you have a tiered system where some police officers are only using rubber bullets. That would work too, you whatever. Know, whereas something. the highly trained ones are using actual bullets and com- called in necessary because system they have in London. Sure. You know, where police officers are not, you know, using guns and they only bring in the ones with guns under right. those serious situations. Of course, you create other problems with stabbings and things like that, but. You know, that's a different situation. You know, you got to ask. Something has to be done. That's my point. My point is the cop problem isn't let's blame cops. The cop problem isn't let's punish cops. The cop problem solved by let's train them effectively and have a better system. That's how it's actually fixed. You do that, you'll have better cops. Incentivize them differently, whether it's through the survey or through the conviction or whatever. All good. Train them better so they're not just shooting immediately. You do that, you're going to have better cops. I say it all the time. Better systems, better outcomes. Without question. Bad out- if, if the problem keeps happening, it's not the people. And that's something to remember. Right? I, I talked about this when I was running for governor with the, the corruption. I said, everyone's getting arrested. Everyone's corrupt. Everyone's not corrupt, which means it's the system that is either drawing in corrupt people because it's a bad system or rewarding corruption so much. If you ever look, and this is an interesting thing, if you looked at all the people who went to jail uh, who were around Cuomo last year and the year before people were convicted, the vast majority of them, their defense was everybody did it. That was their defense. Defense was I couldn't get anything done unless I did this. Don't get that me started defense. on federal government overreach in these things. You know? uh, please, I want to get you started. Please. <laughs> yes. We don't have enough time left. Yes. <laughs> but, but the thing that drives me crazy is you, you, you find a system to where Everyone believes that we're all doing things bad, so they do things bad. Everyone believes it, so they can't get anything done when they're trying to get good things done. I'm sure many of those people were trying to get things done that were important for their constituents. I'm sure some were just bad people too, but they were trying to do the right thing. They thought, oh, I have to play ball to get stuff done. So they get stuff done for their local communities, and it's illegal. And now they get targeted, and now they go to jail. How do I know that? Because their defense was everybody's doing it. Bad system. If you constantly see the same people going to jail, it's a bad system. What the the uh what what's the Illinois governor? The last three hundred prisoners, something like that. That's a bad system. Right, right. Blagojevich. Yeah, like the last three in a row, were either arrested or indicted mm-hmm. or whatever. But they're all going to jail. If that's happening, you've got a bad system. That's right. not bad people. And if we focus on we. The reason why I say this is because once we focus on punishing the people, once we punish them, we then feel righteous, and then we don't fix the system. We go, see, I punished that guy. We're good. And the system isn't changed. We're waiting for the next guy to come through. We'll target him. Oh, we punished him. So it's like everyone, every once in a while, we arrest or punish some guy. It happens to be one of the guys, whoever probably either is the most powerful we're jealous of or the one who's the weakest, easier to get or pick him off. He or she goes away, and we say, see, justice is served. This goes to my biggest point. I don't think we have a justice system. We have a punishment system. I would agree with that in a large aspect. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, my biggest problem is if you look at how a system works and how people talk, this isn't just the system. It's us, right? You rob my house. I'm sorry. I rob your house, right? I rob your house, and I take... $3,000 worth of stuff from your house, right? You lost that stuff. I go off and sell it because I'm a thug, whatever I am, a bad guy, sell it. I don't care why, and that's gone. I took the money and I 
blew it away on hookers and blow, right? So it's all gone, right? That's what I do. <laughs> Everyone knows how I love hookers and blow. So yeah, so anyway, so I do all that. Georgia, right? he was kidding. <laughs> yeah, I'm kidding, yes. So anyway, so I, I blow it all away, right? The cops catch me. And they go, don't worry about this, Mr. Varghese. We got this cover. We're going to give justice. So I go away for two years. Now I go away for two years. Who pays for me? You do. Yep. You got robbed twice now. Not just that. All your insurance rates go up. You got robbed three times now. You got robbed three times now. And I just now got two years in prison. I now have a criminal record. There's no way of me and, getting anything. And you come out much hardened. I come out hardened. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to do anything except go on a dole, which you're going to keep paying for me. Right. So you now get robbed four times. And we now say justice was served. Where is the time when the cops get me and go, great, Larry, you took $3,000 worth of his stuff. You owe him $3,000. And we're going to put you to work until you pay back those $3,000. You actually get your money back. Maybe with some interest. That used to be justice. Don't you want me working again so I can pay you back? You would think that might make some sense. It doesn't. So America is all about punishment. Yes. Right? And this is the punishment society. We have more people in jail than Russia, mm-hmm. than China. Yep. I mean, it is the the prison industrial complex. <gasps> controls this country just as much as the military industrial complex does i mean we could you know we have a couple minutes left we could talk about this for two hours just on its own absolutely and and this is a problem why is it that so many people are in jail and it goes back to the war on drugs yeah it also goes back to the culture of imprisonment that's in this society and you know one of the things that i think that I like to tell myself that I was better at, you know, being a prosecutor in Brooklyn under Hines was that we were more sensitive to this. Mm-hmm. We only put away really bad guys, mm-hmm. right? And so guys that are actually violent, mm-hmm. guys that hurt people physically or, you know, rob them at gunpoint, those kind of things. I remember uh, a great story, and, and I know we're running out of time, but of, of this woman who came and, and, and I you know, I, I will do this uh, all day, and I and I make fun of the liberals. Okay. Because we had this uh, liberal a Democrat making fun of liberals. Uh, I, I just uh, I, I, <laughs> you ahead. have no idea how often I do this. But actually, you do. Yes. But uh, this woman came in, and your classic liberal, you know, coming in, you know, and she, there was a kid, a young kid who was an adult, legally adult, but not much more than that, who had had snatched her pocketbook. And she literally chased him. She did. She chased him through Grand Army Plaza, okay. Park Slope. This is the seven eight precinct, and and literally she came into the grand jury because he was arrested. Because she turned. Did ahead. she catch him? Uh, well, by the time she chased him, there was a police officer there who okay. caught him, so he didn't get very far. Okay, right. And she came into the grand jury. It was written up as a felony. Came into the grand jury and was like, "This kid needs to go away," you know, like, and I was like. Get out of here. Come on. <laughs> Get your pocketbook back. Get your money back. Nothing's gone. And that's the mentality. It's a punishment society. Yes. You know, yes. and we I remember that. I laughed. Yeah. I was like, really? Yeah. We got serious issues here, you know? Yeah, no, I, I think you see it everywhere. The idea of once you punish, it becomes okay. So, look, in the last couple minutes, what do you want to say? Something you want to say? Something you want to talk about? Something you want to let the audience know? I just think uh, you're doing great work here. I enjoy. I enjoy. 
I that was enjoy. the right answer. <laughs> yes. I enjoy the, uh, what you're doing here, and I enjoy everything you did. I supported you for governor. Thank you so much. And uh, as a, I'm a registered Democrat, the only reason I'm, I do that is to vote in the primaries. But let me be very clear about something. He doesn't want to do it because he can't solicit, but I will do it for him. If you want to know more about him, you can go to VargiseLaw.com, V-A-R-G-H-E-S-E-L-A-W.com. Feel free to go there to learn more about what the amazing firm does, uh, the, the successes they've had. And if you get in trouble, get your checkbook out because he is private and then come to him. <laughs> and if you get in trouble, he's the first guy you want to call. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming today. My pleasure, Larry. I thank appreciate you. it. Guys, thank you so much. Uh, again, if you like what you heard, head over to patreon.com slash sharpway. Support us. If you want some cool swag, head over to sharpway.com. I will see you guys next week here on The Sharp Way.